If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Laura Stark. I'm associate professor at Vanderbilt University. This interview is a collaborative effort among myself, author Anthony Hatch, and students in the Vanderbilt course, Prison Medicine. And our reading of Hatch's book, Silent Cells, came at the end of a semester of deep and extensive readings of authors from Frederick Douglass to Fanon, Angela Davis to Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Yet Hatch's analysis in Silent Cells added a fundamentally new and necessary dimension to our understanding of incarceration and our spaces for political action. Silent Cells observes a feature of mass incarceration that is essential to its everyday function. Prison elites, large-scale, persistent administration of psychotropic drugs, including antipsychotics and antidepressants, not for medical care, but for political pacification of incarcerated people. This biochemical, quote-unquote, soul murder, as Hatch calls it, is as unjust as it is inefficient, profit-driven, and poorly tracked, and extends to other settings of what Hatch refers to as captive America, including the military, foster care, elder care, and international detention centers. Silent Cells is a work of liberatory social science. It's of a piece with Hatch's abolitionist agenda that he pursues through his really generous scholarly and activist work including as director of the Black Box Teaching Laboratory and as chair of the program in Science and Society at Wesleyan University. I loved Hatch's generous approach to this interview, and I'm really keen to hear any of your feedback on our conversation. I'm happy to share my prison medicine syllabus and to talk with teachers about ways to develop new books interviews as final collective projects for your courses. You can find me online at Vanderbilt University. I'm talking with Professor Tony Hatch in April of uh, 2022, um, and we are the um, students, the learners of the book Silent Cells um, through the course at Vanderbilt University called Prison Medicine. So Professor Hatch, I want to um, start off by just framing the book a bit. It's looking at psychotropics and specifically in psychotropic use in what you call captive America. And as we understand it, this tacks to a moment in um, mass incarceration, but the use of psychotropics in the way that you're showing um, is not exclusive to um, what are conventionally understood as carceral settings or prisons. But you talk in the book about um, the military use of psychotropics and elderly homes, the foster system. And what's really revealing about your analysis, um, among many things, is that we know the critique a bit, and it's very important, that psychotropics are overused as a form of therapy for, for mental illnesses, as opposed to things like talk therapy, so a reliance on pharmaceuticals for therapeutic purposes. But what you're showing is that um, pharmaceuticals are actually used for behavioral management. It's actually um, a huge portion of it is not attached at all to the idea of um, the health of people in carceral settings, but instead simply to making the lives of people who are having to um, operate in these bureaucratic settings be able to do it more smoothly. So it's just behavioral control. And uh, for us anyway, that was not just an extension of what we already knew, but a fundamental um, different area to understand in terms of how um, incarceration works. Um, so to start off, could you um, talk a bit about the distinction you want to make between incarceration um, and captivity? 
because you you emphasize that what you're talking about is captive America, which is related to bureaucracy, but it's bigger than just uh, prison settings. Could you explain that a bit? Indeed. The, the term captive America is meant to encapsulate a set of social institutions that through various legal and non-legal mechanisms, different constituencies have empowered these institutions to hold other people captive against their will uh, um, for uh, various reasons. Uh, that form of confinement or captivity can often, can, as, as Irving Goffman famously analyzed, can be for um, purposes of religious training and instruction, uh, college students, certainly, uh, who go and leave home and go, you know, live uh, in, on, on campus for four years, uh, experience a form of this. And actually school officials uh, actually do maintain a form of kind of authority over those students in, in, in a certain sense. Um, so the legal apparatus, the legal relationship between an institution and the subject is what really defines this form of captivity, where we are empowered to hold you against your will uh, whether that be for purposes of education, whether it be for, for purposes of of uh, care for the convalescent, of 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 parentage for um, the ward, right? For the child whose parents can't care for them or who has lost their parents, um, right? These forms of captivity are related to and, and bureaucratically and legally related to the form of confinement that you see in mass incarceration vis-a-vis -vis prisons and jails um, in the United States. And it basically has to do with the power of the state, right? We, we, we grant this power to the state, to the nation state uh, and various apparatuses and institutions within the state to hold people against their will. And it's that form of captivity um, that is, 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 again, present in prisons, present in jails, and, and certainly most famously so, but also exists in these other institutional settings where it turns out psychotropics are also used in ways that make it very difficult to determine what is a proper medical use versus what is a use that is more in alignment with institutional prerogatives, that makes it cheaper to house people, that makes it easier for the people on the staff that day. You know, discerning those, that boundary turns out to be a very difficult thing to do, but, but it, it cross these different contexts. But they, it, you know, and I, there's different, um, you know, I think in writing the book, I learned a lot about how different institutions grapple with this problem of over-medication, mismedication, uh, and medication in general. Um, but it's linked to their particular institutional purpose, whether it's to uh, hold people against their will in a secret prison or versus uh, caring for uh, our elders um, who, who need full-time care uh, or people who have committed crimes against the state and therefore are, uh, are incarcerated. Yeah, it really seems to expand a lot of um, concepts that people might know from Weber on bureaucracy and think through, think through it in terms of racial capitalism. Um, so in addition to the bureaucratic state, um, the, the capitalist democratic state and how those two things of bureaucracy and capitalism are linked um, and the, the impacts in terms of sustaining racial oppression. Um, so, so that it raises um, difficult questions that you handle so well in the book about um, distinguishing between different kinds of uses of psychotropics. And so here I'm going to hand it over to McKenna. Thank you again, um, Dr. Hatch, for having us here. Uh, I'm just curious to see what you think on how these, how do you particular distinguish between the psychotropics that are generally needed and the ones that are used as a form of control? This is a very difficult and thorny issue. One, one that I don't have a satisfactory resolution to even today, because um, the boundary, the conceptual boundary between normal medicine and spirit murder is an illusory boundary. That, that boundary is, is, is really is permeable 
and it can it can be recoded depending on the context. So even in the same context, I can be both medicating you because you have a, 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 a diagnosed lifelong psychiatric condition that warrants treatment, and I'm also needing to make my life easier on the block today. The same practice can have both meanings at the same time. In addition to, you know, um, how do we actually discern at the level of the intention of the actor, you know, the, 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 the pharmacist giving dispensing or the, the prescriber, what they intended to do, um, it's very difficult to, to distinguish kind of how we, where we draw that line. What's the rationale upon which we, that we apply to a situation that would let us make a clean and clear determination. Okay, this this was genuinely needed versus this is this is a form of of spirit murder or 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 psychiatric violence in the words of Edward uh, Edward Optin, right? Psychic violence. Um, it's it's impossible to know. And in fact, to me, that's the most the fact that it's we can't resolve that that that's an, in some ways an unknowable kind of thing. Or that it, that knowing that requires that we have intimate knowledge we never actually get. That instability, that uncertainty is is what is dangerous. To be honest, it's that that the state we, we're in a situation where the state and state actors, because they can't provide these medications themselves, have to purchase them off on the, on the private market. Right. So there's a absolutely a capital connection through and through. Um, is then dispensing these medications for a whole range of reasons, these these drugs for a whole range of reasons across this across the country, from the military, I mean, shipping them abroad in the military. I mean, they're, they're really everywhere. I mean, I, I really wish I could have evidenced this this particular thing, which was that you know um, really proving that the United States government and all of its U.S. government and its the U.S. nation state and all of its institutional diversity is the single largest purchaser of psychotropics in the world by far. You add military, Medicare, Medicaid, the prisons, right? You start to add it all up and it's like, it's a lot. So figuring out for all of those doses, hmm, that's a difficult thing. But the fact that there's this uncertainty to me is dangerous remains what's dangerous about the political situation because there's no way to go back after the fact and say, okay, this one was right, this one wasn't. And that was, you know, even in analyzing the prison audits, pardon me, the pharmacy audits, even with full access to the medical records, they go back in and they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> the auditors had difficulty often discerning what would have been a legitimate versus an illegitimate use. Um, and so that's a, a, a practical medical issue that has epistemic or epistemological dimensions that are layered on top of them. Super helpful. Um, it, it sounds a, a bit like uh, thinking about climate change and how the uncertainty, the unknowability of uh, the, the claimed unknowability of what is true and what is false. It's that uh, production of uncertainty that actually um, sustains uh, really bad political conditions. You know, in, in addition, you know, I, I just makes me think of the uh, Michel Foucault's conception of psychiatric power and, and what he called the kind of double register of medication and direction, right? So just because it's a, there's a medical stamp that's applied to the situation, even though it's in a carceral setting, and because there's that medical stamp is applied and a token of knowledge is distributed, the psychiatrist signs off, the double register of medication and like the direction of the will happens at the same time. And there is no way to distinguish between those analytically after the fact. Yeah. So the, the in addition to this distinction between um, uh, incarceration and captivity, as well as what we we're just talking about in terms of legitimate and illegitimate uses of psychotropics and the irresolvability of that, Another really helpful refinement that you make in the book, a distinction, is um, between uh, silencing and two, you give a double meaning to silences. And particularly in chapters one and two, you're setting up for the readers what you're using as data. And part of what you're using is um, 
the the gaps in data production and how gaps are actively produced. And uh, it, it brought to mind um, for me the literature in STS on agnotology, but that is probably another conversation um, I'll, I'll set aside for now. Um, so for this, I'm actually going to move to Emily and have her sort of tease out this double meaning um, of silencing, both through the, psych the psychic death of the individuals themselves and the silencing of um, uh, knowledge and any knowledge about what is actually happening in uh, prison systems. So Emily, take it away. Thank you. And thank you so much, Dr. Hatch, for being here. So early on in your book, you talk about the FDA adverse reporting system, especially in connection to psychotropics. And factors such as gender and age are reported. However, I noticed that race and ethnicity data is not included. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how leaving out these data points, there is a story that may not be told by the FDA and what you make of that. It's a great question, Emily. And the, the these kinds of institutional uh, blind spots exist throughout the kind of uh, national health infrastructure, right? This isn't the only area where there are gaps in knowledge, right? Gaps in knowledge, things that we don't know, uh, um, they, they can exist for all kinds of reasons. And I think in, in, in writing Silent Cells, I did explore the literature on agnotology and the kind of, you know, philosophical examinations of, of things we don't know um, and, you know, how we make sense of those in both in philosophy and also in history and black studies. Right, and feminist studies, thinking about how different critical scholars have really analyzed silencing practices at the level of individuals, groups, and at the level of institutions. Um, um, and so I think that, uh, that, that cuts throughout this, this project. Um, whether it's analyzing, I'm thinking of the work of Mary Lee Bundy, um, an archivist at my alma mater, University of Maryland College Park, where I write about in the book, who was had this wonderful group called Urban Information Interpreters, and they were like on it, trying to figure out what was happening in Maryland, and writing letters, and having making phone calls, and trying to get to the bottom of it, um, and really identifying the problems with not knowing. Um, but whether, and in this case, it was what the racial distribution was of research subjects in this uh, adolescent juvenile facility that was nearby that was doing all kinds of crazy experiments. And so they were trying to figure out what was happening in that context. And so that just make that that example comes to mind. Um, but you mentioned the FDA and the um, the let's say inconsistencies in the ways in which race and ethnicity is measured in terms of the ADR system. This isn't the only area of the federal health infrastructure where racial measurement is lacking. Um, I've recently been looking at, for example, the COVID data, um, and there are all sorts of um, uh, intentional absences, if you, if you will, around this. I mean, even, for example, around the question of how many people have died and how many of the people who have died are Black. We actually don't know that in fully because of local differences in how race and ethnicity is measured, even though we've got federal laws and federal code governing how this should happen, things don't get all carried out in that way. So when you look at that granular, uh, granular level, um, there's all sorts of things we don't know. Um, it's a, it takes a, lo a leap of faith, a leap of induction, uh, and some contextualizing to, to go from that to to say this absence is due to a systematic, you know, coordinated effort to produce a racial silence or something, right? It, it takes a lot. And I think I, throughout the book, I kept wanting to try to be able to say that and, and was really cautious because I, I think Silent Cells ultimately is a conservative book it, based upon what, I mean, everything that's in there is publicly available. There's nothing in there that required a FOIA request Anybody, everything was open. And so this is what's available. So I, this is, if this is the argument that we can make a based upon what we know, then I think it's a fairly conservative argument. So what if we were to know what the racial data were in terms of adverse drug reporting across, you know, pharmacopoeia? Uh, what, what if we were to know the racial distribution of who participated in all these clinical trials for decades, decades and decades? 
like th those knowledges are potentially um, uh, their political knowledges, right? Um, their mobilizing knowledges, and they would be knowledges that would destabilize the existing medical regime, whether it's for pharmacopoeia or agribusiness or other regimes. So, um, yeah, that that's an, it's a really great question, and it's, and it and it identifies an important area of work that I didn't set out to explore in this book. I didn't set out to explore those institutional silences. I was interested in the first, and it led to the discovery, the kind of investigation of the latter and how they were related. Yeah, and it seems like that is a part of a feature of uh, what you, if you think it's really persuasive, what you're making in terms of a structural argument. So the, thinking about the reasons why perhaps you can't um, hold individuals accountable for um, for intentional absences is what happens with a, a structural account. And we, we did spend a lot of time thinking about issues of accountability. Um, and Madia I'm, uh, really formulated this well. I'll let her take it away. Hi. So in chapter two on pharmacy audit studies, you show the many ways that prison officials handle or mishandle therapeutic drugs in ways that harm incarcerated people. How do you understand the role of prison officials and prison staff in the drugging and capital America? Are they pawns of the state, like incarcerated people, or are they willful agents of harm? This is a good question. And I, I, the first thing I wanna say is that I, I think there's an invitation coming out of silent cells for qualitative researchers, people who study occupations to, to interview um, you know, not just prison staff who currently work in the institution. I one of the things I considered along the way was interviewing defectors, people who used to work for the prison uh, but no longer did, right? Um, and really asking them about their views, asking them about what they saw, asking them about their experiences. Um, I think that would be an interesting project and one that would add to you know some of the work that's happening in silent cells for sure. Um, I, you know, in early in the book, I borrow the framing of Edward Opton, who was writing in the 70s. He's a lawyer, and he he, he said that either the, the the pharmacy staff and the psychiatrists, the mental health staff, they're compliant accomplices, they are naive dupes, or they are kind of pressured subordinates, right? And I so if they're compliant accomplices, they're in on the job, they're, you know, in there with the guards and there certainly are cases historically where you can tell that they were and they came out in court that they were uh, compliant accomplices and, and actually faced civil or criminal penalties for such behavior and there are plenty of cases in the case law of that naive dupes i think it would be hard it's hard to believe that someone working as a prison psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse forensic nurse is walking up in there thinking you know naively as to what is happening in the institution they know that there's a security context that's primary and a, and a person context that's secondary. The primary goal is to stay, keep the, secure, the facility locked down and secure, staff safe, and we'll think about them next. That's kind of the approach. Uh, and then the, the pressured subordinate model is one I actually think I favor, where because of the institutional bureaucratic rules and regulations, the lack thereof in some cases, you know, these staff are in there overworked, Many of them are at the, you know, they're for, particularly for the psychiatrists, right? This isn't, this isn't glorified work, right? Um, many of them are doing telepsychiatry before they rolled it out for the pandemic. They were doing, they're only doing telepsychiatry. So they're on, you know, tele, you know, teleconferences all day seeing patients. So I think that, um, you know, they are under extraordinary institutional pressure to achieve, to get results uh, one way or the other. And that is both in terms of care, but also in terms of control. And so I think that that, that makes it difficult. And so I understand their role um, as ranging from a spectrum of, okay, you guys should know better to, uh, and, and you are actively participating in the subordination of others uh, in many ways that contravene US law, institutional uh, and international uh, human rights understandings of what con uh, consent looks like um, to a, a much more kind of business as usual model where, you know, I just work here, right? That kind of response. 
Um, but I did not interview, of course, any workers in the system. And, and fundamentally for silent cells, and I write about this in the beginning, you know, I wasn't interested in their beliefs. I was interested in what the documentary record said and did not say. So in many ways, their ideas and representations are contained in those records. And so they're reflected those ways, but not in such a way where anyone would have to, you know, face me up and say, yes, I did or didn't, you know, uh, drug this person, or yes, I did, did or didn't have this view about it. Um, if that answers your question, it's a good question. Yeah, and it speaks again to the the structural claim that you're trying to make. It's not about individual psychology. Uh, yeah, and I also I just have to hand it to sociologists for coming up with the two word phrases. And this is why I love sociology. So the naive dupes, the pressured subordinates. It's just it's great. It's so handy. Um, and so before we move on to some of the um, the later chapters in the book, we just wanted to push on a few of the nuts and bolts of um, these first two chapters, which are really um, setting up the landscape for um, what it looks like to have voids of knowledge and also what is knowable. And it's really wonderful and close um, close reading, for example, of questions that are asked in surveys. So a lot and the incompatibilities between different surveys and different places and moments and times. So really um, fantastic and encourage folks to check it out. Um, but we wanted to ask a little bit more about the chapter two on audit studies in which you're talking specifically about how psychotropics are um, purchased, distributed, and also to a certain extent tracked within prison systems. So in terms of nuts and bolts, I'm gonna hand this over to Brenna. Okay, hi. Um, so um, I know how brand name drugs are pushed in the civic marketplace through big pharma, like through advertising and sending drug reps to doctor's offices. How are brands being pushed in the setting of Captive America? This is a good question, Brenna. And in, in chapter two of the book, the, the pharmacy prison, with my dear colleague, former student, um, and now out in the world, Renee Shelby, um, we um, set out to try to understand what the state knew about what it was doing. I think, you know, the, the, this started kind of innocently. You know, we're, we're, we're beginning a project on psychotropics. We're curious about, you know, just kind of gathering up whatever we can find. And we found a few of these audits um, where, um, whether it's a, a, a state government or a county government or a city government, or in some cases, the federal government um, is looking at its expenditure. And they're saying, God, we're spending a lot of money on X or Y. So we're going to send, send in the state auditor, the office of the auditor, usually a, a team of lawyers and accountants and other bureaucrats to go in to assess what's happening in a particular organ of the state government, city government, and so on. And so these audits, it turned out, were a... Um, a offered a unique window, not into the definitive truth about what's happening with psychotropics in prisons, but they offered a unique window into what the what institutions of state knew themselves and what was knowable from within the state, given the institutions of data collection, of, of accounting that they had in place in whether it was a, a state government or in a city or in the federal system. So your question about brand name drugs uh, is a really great one, right? Um, I think that you know prison systems would love to know. Uh, I think how how many of what drug they're buying. Uh, are we buying too much? How much are we paying? Did we get the coupon? I mean, I, I report in the book uh, there was one particular system who that was they had been buying Zyprexa uh, with the coupon, but they had run out of the coupons, and so then they had to switch to some other drug, right? Um, the second generation atypical antipsychotic medications are especially expensive and widely used uh, in prison systems. And so across, for several of them, uh, the, there was a concern about how, how much they cost. You know, these prisons are paying, they're paying full ticket um, you know, for these, for these, 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 these medicines. Um, so it was a, an act of real discovery for Renee and I to discover, for example, the Minnesota 
Multi-State Contracting Alliance for Pharmacy, MCAP, which is this, again, they're purchasing pharmacopoeia for 900 prison systems in the country. And so through these, these agree, and they're like, op, they're like located in the office of like minerals within this, the state of Minnesota, you know, in this kind of inauspicious place, but they're purchasing in mass, you know, pharmacopoeia for not just prisons, but for a whole range of state institutions that need to buy them on the cheap, right? Um, so it provides an audit mechanism, and at least there, there's an accounting system somewhere. You know that the, what they're buying, what how much it costs year to year is all laid out. So um, you know, I think you know there, maybe there's one one thing I draw attention to in thinking about pharmaceutical interests in prisons uh, is that um, I think silent cells changes our conception of, of our focus on private privatization in prisons that you know yes there's private firms all up and down the way that are are, are I mean the prisons are built by architects and the, the, the concrete firms and the fencing and the, everything is provided every the entire infrastructure is in, is provisioned by capital and so it's not just about whether the prison itself is owned by a private corporation these things are literally built built infrastructures that are paid for by you know taxpayer dollars and that money is transferred to private corporations for the purposes of capture and so and, and and confinement so you know the brand name drugs yes but just lots of drugs lots of lots of band-aids lots of gauze lots of everything and so how much it's about a fifth of the prison expenditures 20 percent of, of of prison expenditures are on health care just like it is out here in so-called free society. Super interesting. Yeah, I just have to underscore that, um, especially that chapter, but the book overall really shifted our understanding of privatization in, um, in mass incarceration. So there is such wonderful literature on the privatization of the, the facilities themselves, but your documentation of the contract relationships um, and how extensive and pervasive and totally wedded to additional systems of privatized or spaces of privatization. Um, I thought it was really, really illuminating. Um, and so one of the other areas that um, you handled so well and really changed our thinking was around thinking through the history of ethics and research on incarcerated people. And so I have to say that I uh, fall fall prey to this myself, and we in the in the class together, we've all read and had these kinds of discussions, in which there's kind of a will to read, um, exploited research as exploitative in carceral settings, and therefore it must be using black bodies, um, because of the history of um, racial capitalism and oppression. And you find in chapter two in looking closely at the history and there's a longer conversation I'd also love to have some other day about the really important work of, um, of Harriet Washington. Do you think about the research that was going on in US prisons um, after World War II and its relationship to the Nuremberg Code? And I, I feel it helped us see that conventionally there's a, dis a distinction between things that are exploitative and therefore bad, and things that are opportunities, and therefore good. And yet you're showing this research could be on white incarcerated people, and specifically not um, Black incarcerated people, because it was both exploitative and also an incredible opportunity. Um, so, so to develop this a little bit more, I'm going to um, hand it over to Sheila. Hi, thanks again so much for being here. So in your book, you discuss the paradoxical timing of post-war medical experiments in the U.S. as prison drug testing programs actually grew most quickly following the Nuremberg Code, which was a response to experiments on prisoners specifically. Could you just talk about how American exceptionalism during the post-war period also works today to justify psychotropics in captive America? Indeed, American exceptionalism defines how we think about incarceration itself, 
and mass incarceration itself. I mean, I mean, it, it's it no longer is a controversial or even moving moral claim to say that we incarcerate more people than any other nation on earth. People don't even care anymore, right? American exceptionalism, right? We we literally are at the pinnacle. We we do this better than anybody else. And but exceptionalism in that sense, paired with this kind of exceptionalism that pervaded this moment, where um, I mean, it was probably best exemplified at the Nuremberg trials, where one of the do Nazi doctors is on the stand and he's like, yes, you know, we learned what we were doing from experiments at the Statesville prison in, in Illinois. Like we, we studied, we were modeling our research on what you guys were doing. And this was at the trial. And so though, yet yeah, and yet experiments in um, clinical experiments, in non-therapeutic and therapeutic research experimentation continued in U.S. prisons for decades. It actually accelerated dramatically after this period. Um, and it was because, you know, the Nazis were understood as the kind of penultimate moral failure. And we, therefore, uh, could not, because we're democratic and our science is exemplary, right? Um, that here in the West, um, what we're doing is is not only done in the name of progress, um, but it's done in the name of national strength and pride. Um, it's done um, ultimately, as I uncovered and I think analyzed in the book, to uphold a certain conception of white supremacy linked to citizenship, um, whereby only you know kind of the, the the right to to be an experimental patriot was almost reserved for white prisoners. That they got, you know, money. They got uh, maybe time off the block. Some of them got jobs working for the pharmaceutical companies on the studies, and I mean, that was kind of a nice gig in a certain sense. And you know, just like any other benefit doled out in prison, you know, it was doled out in an in an inequitable way. And so the so too the discourses that accompanied that uh, were were inequitable or or were, were stratified, if you will. And so, um, uh, you know, the the I, I still I still think regardless of the work of the brilliant work of Washington and many other historians, I'm still looking to see and again, there's I have more reading to do always. But um, I still don't, we don't really don't know that history all that well. And so there's so there's un archives that have been um, yet as of yet unearthed. And some of that are inaccessible uh, that would would tell us more about um, that 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 complex racial history and the the discourses of exceptionalism that that enabled them through over over the many decades and that might make it possible for them to return, which is even more terrifying. Yeah, speaking of return, um, the the. Uh, twinned ideas of white supremacism and. Uh, citizenship. And so the, the idea that these are just going along side by side and that citizenship as it's figured, as we show in chapter three, and, you know, as, as we know, it's the unmarked category behind ideas of citizenship are whiteness. Um, and that has a lot of bearing on other spaces in which psychotropics are used. And you really get to that in chapter five. And so here I want to um, hand it over to Myra to explore this a little bit more. Yeah, so in chapter five, I was really interested in the way the US government used psychotropic drugs as a strategy of psychic torture. So how would you say Agamben's concept of fair life connects to the way the US government uses psychotropic drugs in other countries where there is military occupancy in war zones? This is a good question, Myra, and it's one that you know takes us into dark space. I mean, there the chapter is titled, you know, there are dark days ahead, and there's the, the indeed, um, you know, trying to get a, ha a handle on the ways in which the United States government and its various agencies use psychotropic drugs for a range of missions, uh, whether they be you know secure, securing the border. Uh, or engaging in in, in their language, uh, or um, and using these these practices vis-a-vis -vis ICE, uh, or um, in, in in war zones, uh, Agamben's concept of bare life really has two parts, right? The bios, which is the manner in which life is lived, 
and zo, which is like the biological fact of life. So there's like the biology, and so bare life would reduce us down to just just the biological fact, right? So that that the complex social relations that are encompass any human life, those are stripped away, and now we're going to act on you vis-a-vis -vis and through a reduced sense of who you are as a human. You're just an animal, essentially, barely human, if not human, and will act on you as such, a kind of reduction to biology and an acting on people through biology. Um, and I think Agamben's concept is useful as it helps us understand the mechanism that the state thinks it's using when it acts on people in this way, which is to say it, the, the government believes it's using a mechanism uh, that is linked to the control of brains and bodies, right? Um, I mean, this is part of the part of what I think is really interesting about psychotropic drugs as a, as a broad umbrella term is that um, when you really drill down at the pharmacology of these substances, we don't quite know how they work. Their mechanisms of action are not fully understood or characterized. So what work they actually do on the body isn't fully resolved itself. Yet we know that when taken, they produce certain effects. And so we don't even, so the mechanism doesn't need to be specified as biological or psychiatric. You don't even need a diagnosis. We're trying to get the effects. And so that's how you see, this is why the bare life concept is useful because it's, it's not, it's less about looking for, you know, a diagnosis in the medical file and the proper specification of whether or not someone should be getting a drug, but rather what is the mission and how are they trying to achieve the mission? And with that question in mind, it's not difficult to see how the state uses these drugs for all sorts of purposes relative to war. And in addition to um, Agamben or build, building on Agamben, one of the key areas that you go that you get into in the book and conceptualize in the book um, is thinking through necropolitics and what is to be gained and lost in thinking through these cases in terms of biopower and where you go with necropolitics, um, thinking with Membe. So um, Grace is going to pick it up from here. Yeah. Um so you describe psychotropics as instituting necropolitics by causing a psychic death. Um, does this form of political control necessitate some sort of physical or bodily intervention, um, or could it be done without chemical intervention? This is, I mean, especially given this last question, this is a good question for us to take up. Um, is it possible to achieve psychic death? in a population without pharmacological intervention. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the, the United, here in the United States, at least, the US population is one of the most propagandized populations, you know, over the last hundred years, whether it's propagandic, literally formal propaganda marketing campaigns designed to get us to drink more milk, to do this, to do that. I mean, you, we start to think expansively about, you know, um, ideological systems whose function is to train behavior. Shusana Zhubov, for example, in the age of surveillance capitalism is looking at you know, these future behaviors markets and how even our participation in social media is designed not just to understand what we do, but to predict and control what we do. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say in broad terms, um, there are multiple cultural and epistemic systems that are used to, um, to uh, not maybe to necessarily to psychically kill the population, but maybe we could say, put them in a trance, put them in a sleep, you know, make them comatose. Maybe, you know, they're in a coma. There's certain, maybe they, but they can be revived and resuscitated, right? Um, with critical intervention and education, right? So the, 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 this is, uh, that term is useful, not just for understanding these kinds of technological interventions on the body, but I think also for understanding the forms of illogical capture that make it hard to think through intervention and how we move forward. Hmm. Really interesting. Um, the because I the examples that you gave around persuasion and marketing campaigns, these kinds of things, they're all semiotic or linguistic. And I feel like one of the things that is so um, radical is despite the fact that you say the book is actually quite conservative, which in terms of the data used, it's 
very, um, it's, it's fail safe uh, in terms of the, the data and your interpretation of it. But what it's showing, um, and you riff on a bit in the book, is about materiality. And that is specifically what is, I feel like um, there haven't been many conversations, um, scholars like you doing this kind of work to think about the materiality of psychic death and how that's how that's accomplished. So more to say about that, but, but picking up um, on the place that necropolitics places in uh, features in the book. So the importance of necropolitics for your analysis uh, Milan is going to take it from here. Hi, thank you again, Dr. Hatch, for being here today. This conversation has been so interesting. Um, I wanted to ask, in Discipline and Punish, Foucault discusses the constant surveillance, social isolation, and dehumanizing conditions that have been used to systematically oppress people in carceral institutions. And then you show in the book how forced drugging layers on an additional strategy of discipline. How does the weaponization of psychotropics in these settings change the need for or alter the relationship to Foucauldian forms of discipline? I have to say your question had me breaking out my Foucault. I've been blowing dust off the bookshelf and, and really going back. And, and, and in all honesty, I've, I've been wrestling and reckoning with Michel Foucault's philosophy and his historiography for many, many years now both in terms of trying to understand his theorizations of biopower and biopolitics vis-a-vis -vis race and racism, uh, the institutions of state and how they engage in the government of health uh, in the population. Um, and, and of course, not just on the medical side, but of course, in the carceral setting, the, the book Discipline and Punishes, really foundational to our understanding of how carcerality works. And yet it leaves some things on resolved and that's it, it you know it's kind of hard to you know you i'll just say i think that i don't think that what's happening with psychotropics is actually disciplining i i think it's a form of pacification um and that's that's not necessarily you know if 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 discipline was supposed to produce a body that was docile and useful and uh, these do these bodies are useful even through their dying slow psychic dying they're still consuming they're still profitable in that sense. And yet I think that that is a kind of, um, uh, uh, um, uh, it's producing a pacified population as opposed to one that in, is disciplined vis-a-vis -vis its utility. The, the usefulness of the population doesn't come from its, how that is converted into policy and kind of political currency or economic currency. Those things aren't even measured. Right? They don't really even know. It's more about we've got to do something with these people, just put them there. And how do we do that? How do we achieve that? And to me, that's where the abolitionist mission in, in Silent Cells really is, is there. You know, I wanted to produce a book that could take a leg out from underneath the system of mass incarceration. How do you stand it up? You can't do it, I don't think, without these medications in place. And so they, they do... These mechanisms, these technologies, these practices do accompany existing forms of government vis-a-vis -vis discipline and surveillance. Um, yet they are also distinct from them and don't require surveillance. You don't even need to get, they're giving out drugs in more prisons than they're doing evaluations, right? So they don't even need to evaluate you to give you the drug. So there's a, a, a severing of some of Foucault's conceptions of knowledge and power, or a re rethinking of it, if you will, that we don't need to know what was wrong with you to give you this. We're just going to give it to you because we need to. And I think that that, that is, is, is one of the ways in which I think about how this weaponization of psychotropics you know, re has a, should have us rethinking the kind of power that's being deployed here or the kind of power that um, characterizes these relationships between people and the state. So much more to talk about here, and we've already um, taken so much of your time. I would love just to wrap up with one last um, a bit big question, um, but I want to really uh, hear, hear you talk more about the abolitionist project, not only behind this book, but behind your previous book, Blood Sugar, um, on racial pharmacology, your lab at Wesleyan, the, the black box lab, it's 
which looks amazing. But could you just to kind of wrap us up, speculate, sort of do a do a speculative um, speculative history of the future around decarceration? So what what is this speculative um, abolitionism that you want to think through and imagine? This is a question that gives me pause. And it gives me pause in for all the right reasons. And that is that uh, it occurred to me in writing Silent Cells, and I write about this in the book, that I was no longer interested in producing liberal social science that could be easily you know, incorporated into a program of reform. Um, I, I, thought, I thought that I wanted to be producing kind of liberatory social science that was asking the kinds of questions that come from below the people who are, you know, subordinated under these social arrangements, um, whose voices are often not heard, etc. That trying to raise questions from that standpoint, those standpoints, um, is what silent cells aim to do. And in in raising those questions, you know, I kind of let go of the need to offer as many prescriptions you know, prescriptions, as I did at the, at the end of, of blood sugar, actually, trying to offer kind of a, here's some things we might do. Instead, I think that I wrote Silent Cells as a, um, a, as an offering to my, to my friends and who are out there organizing. I'm, I'm a college professor. I teach and write and run a lab and then trying to push on this front that I'm in. I'm, you know, is this, if, if this is a big grand war, you know, for liberation, for democracy, for the future. You know, I'm positioned here in my spot. I got to hold this down and I need other people to be doing their spot where they are. And so I wanted to offer up um, the most well-researched, evidenced book I could to, to show the relationship between these drugging practices and mass incarceration, not just imprisonment, but captivity writ large as, a, uh, as an offering to the um, abolitionist forms of organizing, teaching and scholarship that continue to try to poke at the, you know, the 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 linchpins, the cornerstones of of these institutions. Um, I couldn't, and so that that is where that's where I start. You know, is that the the book has has let me have so many conversations with folks um, who are are doing the work, and to me, that's where the solution comes from: us talking, organizing together not from some hilltop, mountaintop, ivory tower, something like that, but really look at what's happening and it's just been remarkable from whether it's prison physicians or formerly incarcerated people who've said to me or you're onto something you know you know your, your book is right and so now you know there's a kind of um you know recognizing that take it for granted could be changed is where we are yeah well let us all here echo that your book is right <laughs> um and this um this abolitionist present that you're sort of enacting in all your forms of work um, is a great uh, a great model, and um, we're we're here in solidarity with that. And so uh, your your speculative present it's not reform, it's revolution. Um, yeah, right now. So, Tony, Dr. Hatch, thank you so much for your time. Thank you all so much for the wonderful questions, and please be safe out there.